Hello and welcome to Vet Chloe on the Road. Insights from real people making positive change for our planet. I am Chloe, a veterinarian who has an interest in wildlife and all things environmental. And this is a show for people who would like to connect, learn, and prioritize caring for our beautiful green and blue world. Come join me as I travel around Australia in my van, Layla. Let's share all things conservation and meet all the inspiring environmental heroes along the way. Hi guys, sorry if the audio is not perfect. I'm actually not using my microphone to try and improve the volume. But on today's podcast, let me give you a brief report on what my brother Oliver and I were fortunate to experience while traveling into Kakadu National Park the largest national park in Australia the size of Wales, as well as give some insight into what we learnt about the Aboriginal people. Also, what you will notice in the Northern Territory and outback of Australia are these enormous termite mounds, which dominate the landscape. To help bring the termite story alive, King Terry the Termite, my obliging brother Oliver, will be joining us at the end for a bit of fun to learn about this incredible and perhaps underestimated insect and what an integral part of the outback environment they are. So, Kakadu, go there, do it, experience it. What an incredible land. This will be me actually just giving a report, so hopefully it is somewhat conversational. It's not quite as easy to deliver without an interview format, but I hope you still gain some info from it. And we'll meet Terry at the end, so stick with me. So what's so great about Kakadu is actually the spiritual sacredness that this land holds, and that is what I love and respect most about it. We can learn a lot from Indigenous Australians, the oldest living culture in the world, who have been living here in the Northern Territory for an estimated 65,000 years. So imagine what the land would look like after 65,000 years of us living on it the way we do. Instead, Kakadu is pristine and looks as it always should have, except for modern man introducing species, which we'll talk a bit about. The Aboriginal people have a connection to land and have always viewed themselves as part of the land, as well as the custodians of the land. So it's a wonderful relationship that they have. And Kakadu has one of the highest concentrations of rock art in the world. We saw rock art at two well-known sites for, for it, um, Ubir and Nolangi. The rock art is fascinating and a big part of your experience as a visitor here. Some are as old as 20,000 years old. So someone did that art on the rock 20,000 years ago. The depictions of that art is actually where they have boomerangs, and that gives away the period of time that it was done because boomerangs were stopped being used in Australia after the last ice age, which is about 20,000 years ago. The reason being that during the ice age, all the water was frozen at the poles, meaning that there were not many trees for the boomerang to therefore, it was very useful because they had open plains. So I found this interesting how you can see a direct link between the history of the land and the people's interaction with it. The rock art communicates a range of things, creation stories, strong lessons on upholding traditional laws and their way of life. So Oliver and I had three nights in Kakadu with Layla the van. It is now the dry season, so access, particularly in a two-wheel drive, was easy. But in the wet season, which is fast approaching, wet season being November till April, it is trickier. And you certainly would need a four-wheel drive for some of the roads we used. There are no seasons up here in the tropics, but rather just the dry season and the wet season. 
I shared a pic on my Instagram vet Chloe of Ubir, which Olive and I both agree was the most stunning sunset we have experienced. We did that on our first night, and Ubir is a very sacred place. It is an outcrop which gives panoramic views of the floodplains, and there was bushfire smoke going on in the background, which gave the scene an extra atmospheric feel. Such a magical place and very popular with visitors. Uh, they say that in modern life, television has replaced our human need to communally focus on something at the end of the day, side by side, either being in silence or having a conversation about the day. And this has replaced what we used to do with sunsets and campfires. And as I looked around at other visitors from around the world, all sharing this peaceful space and beauty of the sun setting, I think that primal instinct has not left us. We did a rock tour with a local ranger the next morning who explained a lot to us. And I have shared the rock art pics on my Instagram vet, Chloe. It was interesting to learn more about the Aboriginal people's way of life. And I would love to communicate that to you. I will find it difficult to explain, um, but hopefully I do them justice. And I'll include a link in the show notes where you can learn more. But as they explained it to me, the Aboriginal worldview, everything is made of two moieties. One is Yurtja, and the other one is Dua. These are two halves of their holistic worldview, much like yin and yang, but different in its own right. So Yurtja and Dua fit together perfectly, and Yurtja and Dua people intermarry, and everything in the land is either Yurtja or Dua, including the animals. When in Kakadu, you cannot help but learn and want to learn more about the Aboriginal people. So I'll share some of that with you. These... You know, Aboriginal people relate to each other by a kingship system. The principal element of this system is the clan, which is either Yurtja or Dua. You belong to the clan of your father and marry someone belonging to a clan of the opposite moiety. But it is more complicated than this. As the ranger in Kakadu explained to us with a diagram, uh, there are eight different groups or potentially skin names, I believe, depending on who marries who. Uh, and if you have a son or a daughter, and therefore who they then can marry. It's just too difficult to explain um, because I didn't fully grasp it myself, but just got an appreciation for the intricacies of it with one quick run-through. But they have to understand this kingship of their own language, as well as the language of the surrounding clans. And then when the Europeans came, they had to learn English and our Western ways. So there's a lot that they have had to juggle, and we should give a lot of respect to this. We learned that the Aboriginal people do not like to call a language dead or alive, but rather asleep or awake. And there have been over 250 Aboriginal languages, and these are separate languages, not just dialects. About 120 are still spoken today, but many are at risk of being lost as elders pass away. But as they say, they go to sleep, um, and there's a great push by Australia to preserve these languages with video recordings, documenting and archiving them. As the ranger put it, tragically from the trauma and destructive changes of Europeans arriving in Australia, Captain Cook arriving into what we now call Sydney in 1770, many Aboriginal people are working through their own grief and surviving with these sudden changes. And they may not have the time or incentive to keep up their own language, but it is always there for them to access. Interestingly, this kingship system also lets you know who you can and cannot talk to. For example, you cannot talk to your father-in-law or mother-in-law. So this is in order to prevent disagreements, and we may agree that this would be sensible in modern day too. 
Also, you do not have just one mother or father or just your own blood aunties and uncles. Uh, but if they share the same skin as your mother, father, aunties or uncles, then they too are your mother, father, aunties and uncles. This is so that if anything happens to your family members, you are still in a supportive network. And you treat family members the same way, uh, just as much, whether they are blood or skin relative. Also, the fact that you can only marry certain people is for the obvious reason of preserving good genetics in a small group, but also to keep the harmony in the group, which is vital for their survival, and also for the sustainability of the land. So it's all quite clever. So depending on your moiety of yurtja or dua, and your sex, and your life stage, you can eat certain animals but not others, thereby preventing too much stress on one food source. And perhaps I'll share one story out of the many that we heard depicted in the rock art. And this was at Ubir. And it's about a young girl who went fishing on her own. And that day she was not able to catch anything. She was hungry and she was there until the very end of the day when she finally did catch a fish. But it was a barramundi fish, which she was forbidden to eat due to her time of life and the traditional laws. She was on her own, very hungry, and thought, hey, why not? No one will see me. I'm going to eat this fish. So she did. But a neighboring clan saw her and realized that she shouldn't be doing that. They went down and punished her, but way too severely. She went back to her clan, and I guess she was black and blue. She told them what had happened, and they were actually very angry at the situation because although she had broken the traditional law, which is serious, she had been punished way too severely by the other group. So a battle between the two clans broke out. Many people were killed. This is actually unusual because violence between clans was not common. They were actually very norm normally very harmonious. But this story teaches the lesson. Uh, in the rock art, you see this battle, um, spears being thrown, uh, lots of people, some you know down and injured. And this teaches the lesson that you are always being watched for if you're doing the right thing, and your choices have a consequence on the whole group. And this would have been taught specifically to the younger members of the group. And where we got taught this story, it was much like a classroom. Uh, we had a view, almost like a window, it was like a chalkboard up front, and we all were sitting around, much like seats in a classroom at school. So it's, it was lovely to kind of feel like the story had then been passed on to us. So. This is just a tiny taster of what I've experienced and a tiny taster of what makes up, you know, Aboriginal people and their way of life. Very fascinating, and I'd love to learn more. And the Aboriginal people have had to learn by force our way of life. And I think that out of respect, we should put in the effort to learn more about their way of life. We can learn a lot from it. So you can't come to Kakadu and not see crocs. Our recommendation from close friends um, was for Oliver and I to go to these wetlands and do a tour where we saw many crocs and also so much bird life. This was at Yellow Water. Kakadu was recently voted number one bird watching site in Australia by Australian Geographic magazine. And I can believe it. You know, so many different bird sounds in Australia and so many different birds that we saw. We also saw a water buffalo, feral pigs, and cows. Um, sadly, these introduced species with hooves trample the ground and disturb the wetlands, natural flora, and fauna. They really are quite destructive. 
So routine culling is how they try and stay on top of this problem, but it seems relentless. And I'm going to try and learn more about this conservation management tool. Goodland Falls was a highlight to us. It was a water spot where we could swim. We did feel very nervous about getting into the water after having seen crocs earlier in the day that would have certainly eaten us if we'd given them the chance. Uh, this was a freshwater area, but do not be fooled. Salty, saltwater crocs can and will live in freshwater. But there were no freshwater crocs around, and local knowledge said it was safe. There are many other visitors and locals there that tested out before us, but still um, took some bravery to get in there, but it really was quite lovely. So the climb up the hill of Goodland Falls was worth it. There's a natural infinity pool and waterfall up there. So incredibly beautiful. The normal waterfall is just trickling because we are in the dry season, but further up, smaller waterfalls, but a bit more flow. And just loved it. You know, what I can say is that we loved our Kakadu time. We were staying at campsites. We enjoyed this incredible bushland. And, you know, it is a really very tropical environment. You actually have to drink up to four liters a day to avoid heat stroke and illness. And there are signs out in Kakadu to warn you of this. So I really recommend that you put in the effort to visit Darwin. We love Darwin as well. Um, come up to the top end of Australia and experience it for yourself. So the second part of this uh, podcast is going to be about the termite. So here we go. Welcome to the studio, the Honorable King Terry. G'day, mate. Thank you for joining us, King Terry the Termite. I thought you could help our listeners learn more about you and your fellow termites. Yeah, well, I uh, don't get out much, but uh, rightio, happy to help. Can you explain what you as a termite are? Certainly. Us termites are a soft-bodied insect that live in large social colonies. We evolved from close ancestors of the cockroach, don't hold it against us, uh, during the Jurassic or Triassic period, perhaps 200 million years ago. There are about 3,000 termite species in the world, and about one-tenth live here in Australia, with most being in the Northern Territory. Wow, incredible. Such a diverse animal. And this brings me to my question on you being a termite king. What is the social structure of termites? Ah, oh, castles, eh? Uh, you call them a man, but we call them our, our castles. Uh, termite colonies, or the man's of earth you see on the landscape, vary from a few hundred, several million individuals. The social structure of each colony, much like bees and ants, consists of three classes. The workers, the soldiers, and the reproductive. It is the social structure of why we have thrived in almost every part of the world. Fascinating. So can you explain these three different classes or roles? Sure, mate. The workers are the largest group in any colony, and they are called workers for good reason. They bloody work, don't they? They forage for food and store it over the rainy days. They also build and maintain nests and look after the baby termites, the brood. <laughs> they have a soft body and a hard mouth. And this hard mouth, is it to help them do their work? Yeah, to collect food, to groom other members of the colony and to fix up the castle. Thank you. And can you tell us a little bit about the soldiers? Like any soldier, our soldiers are the main defence system of the colony. Mainly against our main predator, the bloody ant. We also have attacking beetles, flies and wasps. Uh, the soldiers have a hard body and a huge jaw for their work, but unfortunately this means they can't eat, 
so the workers' ants help them with this. Soldier termites take their jobs very seriously, I'd like to add. And if one dies, there is always one second in line to replace him. Self-sacrifice or defence of the colony is often done. Goodness me. Yes, they do take it seriously. And for the reproductive class, is that you and the Queen? Queenie, yeah. That's me and the Queenie. Uh, Workers and soldiers are both sterile groups. And so we have to be in charge of procreation. As the royal couple, we mate for all our life. It is exhausting, and we have to save all our energy for this. The queen lays millions of eggs in her lifetime. You may be shocked to know that the same individual queen termite can live up to about 45 years, so a pretty old bird. Wow! 45 for an individual termite, the queen, to live. That is incredible, because normally we think insects don't live that long. So, how about you, sir? Not quite as long as me missus over there, but for sure longer than the workers and soldiers who average about one to two years. You see, I never have to leave the nest. And so what happens to the colony if anything happens to you or the queen? Well, you see, us termites have it all worked out. God forbid if something awful were to happen to me or uh, Queenie back at the castle... Supplementary reproductives, which can mature into primary reproductives, are waiting in the wings. A lot of backstabbing. It's like Game of Thrones in here. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So you have these backups. Yeah, precisely. And can you tell us your role as termites in the ecosystem? Us termites are crucial to the ecosystem. When we build our nests... We bring clay particles with attached minerals from the subsoil to the surface, thereby reversing the leaching effect of torrential rains that these regions get. Wow, so without termites, the land would not be able to hold as much of its precious water when the rains do come. You've bloody got it. (laughs) So, termites, what do you guys eat? We feed on trees and grass. And when food resources are low or too far away... We just move our colony, get the workers to build another one. Another benefit we have for, our, for the land is when our termite mans break down after the colony has died, we provide a natural fertiliser, providing fertile patches where new plants can grow. Wow. And are there any other roles you have? And, you know, sorry to mention, but besides... You're honourable. But besides other insects, are you a food source for other animals? No worries though, love. Us termites are resilient, and we think as a whole organism made up of many individuals. But yes, certainly, some of our mob are eaten by birds, mammals, echidnas, reptiles, and frogs. We're happy to be of service, but it's not me that's getting eaten. Anyway, we we even hollow out the branches of trees to assist the different birds, especially the parrots, in finding somewhere to nest. Well, you must be incredibly proud, Terry, of your colony and all that it does. Water retention of the land, providing soil fertilizer, food for others, and creating homes for other species. You certainly are instrumental in this ecosystem. Why, thank you. We are even the ones responsible for hollowing out the branches of which the Aboriginal people make their didgeridoos. Oh my goodness, it doesn't stop the work that you termites do. I love the sound of the didgeridoo. I've also noticed people dressing up termite mounds in shirts and hats. What is this all about? Yeah, all their old clothes. Don't see them putting any tuxedos on our castles at all. But, um, yeah, Aussies like to have a laugh and dress up the dress us up in jest. Uh, kind of the Aussie outback equivalent of a snowman, I guess, except we're here all year round. 
Well, termite mounds, whether dressed up or not, are certainly noticed out here. Thank you for your time, Terry, and helping us learn a bit more about you, the amazing termites. My pleasure, darling. So there you have it. Thanks for listening, guys. And a big thanks to my brother Oliver for being such a good sport and stepping in as Terry. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned a few things. You can always check out the show notes to learn more in the podcast app or vetchloe.com. And I share some pics on Instagram too. And if you like the show, I'll be most grateful if you could tell a friend, subscribe or rate and review on iTunes. It all helps. Next episode is going to be good. Have you heard of Andrew Eucles? If not, you'll thank me for tipping you off on this. Andrew is one of a kind and describes himself as an Australian outback adventurer. Check out his YouTubes, surname spelt U-C-L-E-S. Some of his videos have over 15 million hits and for good reason. He is doing stuff that no one else dares, catching wild animals barehanded. He has started here in Australia but has traveled all around the world with the skill of his being able to read nature and animals, all to promote wildlife appreciation and conservation. His YouTubes will give you a better snapshot as to what he's all about. I am doing one of his Eucle tours, actually heading out this morning for four nights into the wild bush um, to have the ultimate adventure, and I'll share a link in my show notes. Check it out if you'd like to see what I'm up to. I'm very excited. Oliver and I met up with Andrew the other night for a beer, and he is just like he is on the screen, full of energy, animated. He has the best stories and is as genuine as they come. You really cannot miss the next episode. I have so many questions to ask. Till then, stay kind, and I'll see you at the next stop.